From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that never finds a billion years boring. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Sponges, Older Than Dirt? How you doing? I'm doing well. So what are we talking about today? Well, uh, a couple months ago, this paper came out that reported that this researcher had found evidence of fossil sponges from rocks that were 890 million years old. And that's very, very old. Yeah. Nobody had kitchens back then. What kind of pots and pans were they cleaning? Exactly. We would have used just sand from the river to clean our pots and pans back then. (laughs) No, but yeah. And so it got a little bit of a splash in the wider press. And I think it might have appeared in the New York Times and on NPR as well. Uh, And it was talked about a little bit that, wow, isn't this interesting sponges from 890 million years ago? But I thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit more detail about why that's really fascinating and interesting. And perhaps some groups of paleontologists would not have necessarily predicted that you would find evidence of animal life that old for decent reasons, Mm -hmm. but why other groups of researchers would have predicted that you would expect to find sponges in that age range. And what is the source of this disagreement? And what does this new finding tell us about that? So maybe a place to start is with a geological time period that many people perhaps have at least heard of, and that's called the Cambrian Explosion. So we're now traveling back in time to the Cambrian Explosion. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So yeah, Mike is doing the appropriate time travel hand gesture to... (laughs) accompany the time travel noises. And the party time was excellent. So <laughs> so the Cambrian explosion is this era in the geological record from about 541 million years ago that lasted for about 20 to 25 million years long. And the reason it's so notable is that this is a level in the geological record where we start to see lots of fossil organisms of animals that we can recognize as belonging to distinct groups of animals that are still around today. Mm. So for example, it's where we first start seeing fossils that look kind of like the shells of a mollusk. And there are still mollusks around today. That's where we start seeing fossils of things that look like arthropods and arthropods are still around today. And fossils of things that look like vertebrates or really early vertebrate ancestors. And obviously those are still around, right? And so it's in this Cambrian strata of the rock record where we see most of the major animal phyla are already there, recognizably so. So you're saying there are fossils older than that, Uh but they're all what? Single-celled organisms or what? Well, if you go back far enough, you do get back to evidence of single-celled organisms. But if you go back a little bit further, like maybe 100 million years or so, you get into this different era called the Ediacaran period. Obviously, yeah. Everybody knows about the Ediacaran. Yeah, I don't, I know. I don't mean to insult your intelligence. It's like, you know. <laughs> and so this is the period of time that immediately preceded the Cambrian from about 635 million years ago to about 541 million years ago. So it's that it's about a hundred million years long period of time. 
And well, let me let me back up for just a second. So initially, the fact that all of these animal lineages seem to appear in a relatively short period of time in quote, fully formed versions of themselves and recognizably related to things that we still see around today. Mm -hmm. Creationists like to use that as evidence of divine creation, right? Like this is the moment when everything was created and put on earth and, you know, developed from there, right? Because initially there were no known fossils that were older than those in the Cambrian. And if everything was already fully formed in the Cambrian, well, then that must be evidence that they all popped into existence kind of at the same time. Oh, sure. Right. Okay. Right. So for a period of time, some people would try to use, use it in that way. Of course, evolutionary biologists, never would have agreed with that. But Mm -hmm. so then more recently in this rock strata called the Ediacaran period, fossils started to be discovered. And these were of more soft bodied organisms. And it turns out that one of the reasons why things fossilized better in the Cambrian is that it just so happens that a lot of these lineages started producing hard fossilizable parts during those several tens of millions of years So shells and exoskeletons, rudimentary skeletal structures, teeth. Yeah. So hard parts that fossilize better and things that have soft bodies without any real hard parts, they don't fossilize very well. Mm. So you have to be really fortunate to be able to find fossils of these kinds of things. But it turns out that there are fossils from this Ediacaran period that preceded the Cambrian. And some of those actually look like maybe earlier versions of some of the bilateral animals that we still see around today. They look like impressions of some of the radial animals that we see today. What does that mean? So the bilateral animals, those are most of the animals that you think of are probably bilaterally symmetrical. And that just means that they have only one plane where you can cut them into two mirror image halves. So like you and I are bilaterally symmetrical, right? Like left and right side, left and right side, right? Okay. And most animals that you think of are that way, right? So like any vertebrate you think of is that way. An insect, an ant, just to choose a random example, has <laughs> left and right half, even an octopus, you can only cut an octopus in half because it's got eyes and stuff. Yeah. And so most animals that people think of are bilateral. And that's by far the largest group of animals, the most diverse group of animals. But there are some animals that are actually radially symmetrical. Mm. And something that's radially symmetrical, if you kind of think about a dinner plate, there are lots of different places where you can cut a dinner plate in half. Mm-hmm. and have two equal halves. And so things like that would be like a jellyfish or a sea anemone. Or a starfish. A starfish, that's an interesting example. So a starfish is actually an example of a bilateral animal. Oh, They superficially look like they might be radially symmetrical, mm-hmm. but there are some little features that if you know what you're looking for, they're actually not. They're actually bilaterally symmetrical. So they've been lying to me all this time. Yeah. So anyway, the idea is that the bilateral animals, they're more complex and they're more sophisticated in their behavior in part because they have a head end and a tail end. Mm -hmm. And having a head end means that you get the accumulation of the organs of sensation and formation of a brain at one end. And so you get more cognitively complex animals Mm. as a result of this bilateral body plan. But if you have a radial animal, there's no left or right 
head or rear end of the animal. It's like it approaches the environment sort of in all directions at the same time. Okay. Does that make sense? And so the bilateral animals remained much simpler in terms of their development of like their nervous system, for example. Okay. So anyway, the, these simpler animals for good reasons were thought to precede the development of the more complex bilateral animals. Sure. And in the Ediacaran fossil record, we see quite a few examples of radially symmetrical animals from impressions that they made. So for example, if like a jellyfish or something died and then sank down into the muck and got covered over mm -hmm. and its body made sort of a cast inside the muck that then later got filled in with a different kind of mineral, then what you end up with is a kind of fossil based on the impression that this soft-bodied animal made. Oh, okay. So normally fossils are made by like the bones and things like that, but the softer materials rot away too quickly for them to normally make an impression. That's right. Because they just decompose just like our soft tissue decomposes. And when they do, there's nothing left behind. Yeah. And it's decomposing so fast that there's no permanent record. Right. But you're saying that sometimes it's possible for something soft to settle down leave an impression and for that impression to leave a permanent record. That's right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it's a more rare scenario in which that happens, which explains why the Ediacaran fossils are comparably less common. Right. But they're still present. And so, and then also in the Ediacaran biota, we see fossils that look kind of like sponges. So some sort of sponge-like animal was probably around. And then also in the Ediacaran, we see body plans that don't seem similar to anything that's still in existence now. Just these hmm. weird like trilateral symmetry kinds of things or things with like a weird spiral kind of body plan. So all sorts of really weird body plans. Some of them look like things that we still see. Some of them seem like they might have completely died out entirely. Hmm. And so that's kind of the state of where the field's been for maybe the mid to late 1900s into the early 21st century. And now if we go back a little bit more in time, we get to this period of time called the cryogenian. That's another about 90 to 100 million year time period, starting about 720 million years ago, in which the earth was mostly covered over by glaciers, like reaching all the way down to the equator. If you were to see the earth from space at this time, it, it would have looked like an almost entirely frozen planet, sort of like Hoth. Interesting. Yeah. And so some argue that it was entirely glaciated, including the equator. Mm -hmm. And others argue that it was mostly glaciated and perhaps there was still a band of open ocean around the equator, but away from the equator, it wasn't too far where you started picking up these massive global ice sheets. Huh. So that's sort of the difference between snowball earth, the entire thing's glaciated or slush ball earth. It's mostly glaciated. Now, of course, under that ice, there was still liquid ocean. So uh, was there a time period before then? Yes. Okay. So that was about, like I said, about 720 million years ago until about 635 million years ago. All right. And so this is the time period. This cryogenian is what preceded the Ediacaran. Mm -hmm. And so... The thinking is that, okay, we've got this Ediacaran biota. We kind of see very simple early versions of some of the animal lineages. And then this 
90 to 100 million year old period where the earth was either entirely or mostly glaciated would have been too inhospitable for animal life. So that was thought to form kind of this hard boundary of how old the animals might be. All right. So in the earth's history, it was all molten rock, but that would have been billions of years. Yeah. So that'd have been like 4.5 billion years. And then it was around 4 billion years that we had a nice little crust on the surface. Yeah. And we know that from various craters and from rocks and so forth. Radiometric dating. Right. And then it was believed that there was no life until... Uh, like early, the evidence of oldest bacterial life is actually from about three and a half to 3.8 billion years ago. Wow. So it was, it was a few hundred million years, which in our lifetimes is, of course, a very long period of time. But it, it actually, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that long from when Earth formed a crust to when life, self-replicating single-celled organisms were on the scene. Hmm. But they would have been very simple, like bacteria. Oh, yeah, like the cyanobacteria or something, right? And, and then cyanobacteria, the ones who invented photosynthesis, came along a little bit later. Right. And so then once we had the cyanobacteria who could do photosynthesis, then they started gobbling up all the CO2 in, in the air, and the Earth changed dramatically or something like that, right? Something like that, yeah. So by about 3.5 billion years or so ago is when we first start seeing evidence of photosynthesis. Okay. And the byproduct of photosynthesis is gaseous oxygen. So prior to this, the atmosphere would have had no, very, very little oxygen in it. Okay. Like if we could get in a time machine and go back to this period of time, we would die not too long after we stepped out of the time machine. But then these organisms started being able to harvest the energy of the sun and to split water. And the byproduct of splitting water, the oxygen part of it was just released out into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But oxygen is incredibly reactive. And so for a long period of time, that oxygen that's being released by photosynthesis starts to rust out the iron. Huh. And then once that sink is kind of all filled up, then finally it starts to accumulate in some sort of meaningful way in both the atmosphere as well as the ocean. All right. And so it wasn't until after the cryogenian that oxygen levels in both the ocean water as well as the atmosphere reached levels that we think of animals needing in order to be able to survive. Huh. There's kind of these dual reasons why some people think that the cryogenian kind of forms this border before which animal life wouldn't have been possible. First, it was all frozen over. Mm -hmm. And second, there wasn't enough oxygen, complex multicellular animal bodies to be able to, to function. Okay. All right. So, so that's kind of one school of thought, right? That the cryogenian forms this boundary and animal life prior to the cryogenian. So prior to about 720 million years ago, we're probably not going to find animals. So during this time, would we expect to see plants? Well, no, not necessarily. We probably would have seen very simple photosynthesizing single-celled things that might look like algae to us. Okay. But there certainly wouldn't have been complex multicellular land plants. Okay. So like the surface of the earth would have been just completely barren rock. Oh, okay. I mean, you've been saying animals, and I thought you were trying to make a distinction there, but you're saying any multicellular organism could not survive without oxygen. Yes. Okay. So a couple questions arise, though, because even in the 
Ediacaran biota, those organisms still seem complex-ish. They're not obviously just single-celled or they're organized, multi-part, multicellular bodies. Some of them are even bilateral, suggesting that these complex animals with a head end and a more developed nervous system were actually around well before the Cambrian. And so Hmm. it kind of just kicks back the question to, okay, well, where did they come from, right? Like if the complex Cambrian fauna came from the Ediacaran fauna, well, then where did the Ediacaran fauna come from? It's sort of like a turtles all the way down situation. Sure. And then the other question is whether or not the snowball earth and low oxygen really are a barrier to early animal evolution. And so a different approach at this question is to use a completely different set of methods called molecular phylogeny. So rather than relying on a fossil record and comparing body plans of living organisms, molecular phylogeny compares the DNA sequences from the genomes of different animals. Okay. So the idea is that animals that are more closely related will have genomes that are more similar to each other. And the reason they are different at all is because mutations build up through time. Mm -hmm. That brings us to this idea of what's called a molecular clock. And the idea is that mutations sort of happen at a regular pace, number of mutations per unit time. Mm -hmm. And so you can predict when two lineages diverged from each other by understanding, one, how many differences are there in their DNA sequences, and two, at what rate do those differences occur? And then you can predict how far in the past those two lineages must have diverged from each other. Wait, so you're saying in the mud, they're able to pull DNA out of the mud? No. In this case, what it means is that we're actually working with organisms that are alive today. Yep. Okay. So we can definitely get DNA from things today, and we can definitely compare molecularly how they're related. Yep. Right. And so if you want to use a molecular clock to estimate some of these really ancient divergence times, it's really important that you sample from all of the appropriate groups of animals. And so it turns out that there are five major groups that are important here to sample from. So one of those major groups is the bilateral animals. So basically all bilateral animals that you think of. So this paper that came out in 2017 actually did this work made use of data where there were a number of specimens from the bilateral group. And then there are several non-bilateral animals. And so one of those groups we've already talked about is the cnidarians. These are things like jellyfish and sea anemones. Mm -hmm. Another big group of non-bilateral animals are called the comb jellies. These are the tenophores. Comb jellies, they look, they're sort of like a tiny little gelatinous football shape with these two really long trailing behind tentacles. Okay. So that's, that's another major group. A third major group is the placozoa, which... I would be surprised if anybody listening has heard of this group. It's the very weird little group. The story of their discovery is kind of interesting, and they might be an interesting episode all on their own, but it's this other group of non-bilateral animals. And then the sponges is the other big group. And there are actually quite a few different kinds of sponges. And so in this research, they made sure to sample from all the major groups of sponges. All right. So let's review the five real quick. 
so the bilaterals, the jellyfish, the P1s that you said nobody knows anything about. The comb jellies? Oh, placozoans. Placozoans. Oh, did I miss one? Comb jellies? Comb jellies and sponges. And sponges. Okay. And so jellyfish and comb jellies are different. Correct. Jellyfish and comb jellies are different. All right. So we've got five things. We've got bilaterals, the jellyfish, the comb jellies, which are the football with the tails, mm-hmm. the placozoans. Placozoans. And sponges. Sponges. And not not just like one species from each of these, but like a diversity from within each of those major different groups. Okay. And so by comparing the genomes among all of these groups, you end up with a couple of things. First, you end up with a diagram called a phylogeny, which shows the relationships among these groups. And second, by comparing the number of sequence differences and understanding how rapidly those sequence differences build up through time, you can estimate when those major divergences happened. Okay, so phylogeny, that's the tree of life type thing, right? Yeah. It's a family tree, but instead for animals and species and so forth. Yeah, so instead of a family tree where it's like you and your siblings and your parents and their parents and so on, it's this species and its closest relative and then more distant relatives and so on back in time. Okay. And so all of the animals that are alive today are sort of the leaves in this family tree, the phylogeny. Yeah. But by looking at that, you can say, for instance, humans are very similar to chimpanzees in the DNA, and you can see where those differences come from. Mm-hmm. And then you can get a sense for how long it would take for us to deviate from there. Right. If you compare our genome to the genome of a chimp, you can estimate how far back in time we must have diverged. And then we have fossil records that might show that's exactly that sort of thing. So we can we can sort of check our work with that. That is how molecular clocks are corroborated. That's exactly right. Oh, so we can kind of go back in time using the same clock. Well, this worm's DNA is this different from our DNA. Mm -hmm. And so based on this clock we've set up, we can... It's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon. So you're saying that to do the first step, it takes this much time. To do the next step, it takes this much time. And to get us to be a worm would be do-do-do-do-do-do-do all the way back. And you can estimate how long that would take. Right. In a nutshell, that's the idea. Understanding something about the pace of how rapidly these differences accumulate and then understanding how different two sequences are, you put those two pieces of information together and you can estimate how long ago the split must have happened. And so to sort of follow on your tree analogy, if every living species is a leaf at the tip of a branch, you take two leaves and you follow them back and they might be on stems that come together fairly recently, but you keep following that stem back and suddenly it's joined by another branch Mm -hmm. and you keep following it back some more and it's joined by a still larger branch and so on and so forth. All right. So you get back all the way perhaps to the trunk. Yeah. Okay. And so that that's kind of what we're doing by going back in time on this phylogeny. And so if you do that, if you want to understand how long ago that must have happened, you want to make sure that you're looking at all the major branches on the tree. You can't just like focus on one attractive looking branch on the tree and only look at it and then say anything about what's happening on the rest of the tree. Oh, okay. So it'd be easy to just do mammals, for instance. But you're saying that maybe jellyfish have a different clock than mammals and maybe even different from a comb jelly. Yeah. And in in the context of these very ancient divergences and the groups that we're talking about, if you only had, say, the bilateral animals and the sponges and the tenophores, three of those groups, you might be able to figure out how they're related to each other. But without those other two groups, 
you're missing a large part of the main branches of the tree. And so you can't really understand how those three are related to each other without understanding how the other two fit in as well. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. So it's complicated, but our tree, at least the animal parts, the largest trunk breaks off into five different pieces. And so you need samples from each of those five pieces. Yeah. And four of them are non-bilateral. So these are like, by implication, they're very, very ancient lineages. We would predict that they arose before the bilateral animals arose. So most living animals that we would think of today are in that one branch. Bilateral. The bilaterals. Okay. But we're going back to a time when maybe there weren't even bilateral animals yet. Yeah. And so the upshot is that in this paper, where they did this sampling across all these major groups of animals, the molecular clock data suggests that all of the major non-bilateral animals, and perhaps even the very beginnings of the bilateral animal lineage, had arisen by as early as eight to 900 million years ago, which is a couple of hundred million years before anybody thought was even possible. Right. So Snowball Earth was, what, 700 year, million years ago? Yeah, between 720 and 635 ago. So we've got a gap here. Life started about 3 billion years ago and then nothing interesting until about 1 billion years ago? Almost a billion years ago. Mm -hmm. But the earliest fossils we have, the proof of that is only, what, 700 million years ago? Yeah, in that range. But these other researchers using a molecular clock went back and said, okay, well, it's possible that complicated life could have started up to about 900 billion years ago. Exactly. And okay. so we've got kind of two camps here, right? We've got one camp of people who are using a bunch of laboratory molecular techniques and theoretical modeling to make a prediction about when these major divergences happened. Right. And then we have paleontologists who are actually collecting fossils and characterizing morphologies and using actual physical evidence to try to say something about when these divergences might have happened. So the jocks and the nerds. The jocks and the nerds, exactly. I don't the know. The story is old as time. Yeah. It's like... Maybe it's like nerds one versus nerds two, perhaps, <laughs> right? But there's a big difference between a couple hundred million years of when one camp versus the other thinks maybe these things would have been happening. And a hundred million years, I mean, what's a hundred million years among friends, right? Of course. But the dinosaurs died out only 65 million years ago. So if you think that was a long time ago, mm. then that kind of puts in context a hundred million years. That's like real time we're talking about here, right? So it's a difference of a couple hundred million years between when these two camps think these big animal body plans might've come on the scene. Mm. And so that's what, what made this paper that came out earlier this year so exciting to me is this researcher in Canada found evidence for sponge fossils in rocks that were 890 million years old. Oh, so you're saying that this is sort of a theoretical idea that a complicated life such as sponge mm -hmm. could have existed 900 million years ago, but all the paleontologists are saying, no, 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 the earliest we've ever found is about 700 million years ago. Mm -hmm. While the molecular people say, no, no, we think it could be this old, but there's never been direct proof of that. Right. Got it. Or at, at least until now. So how'd they do that? What's different now? Yeah. So that's what made it so exciting to me. Not only was it a couple hundred million years older than some of these other fossils, it's that it's 
also on the other side of a couple of significant barriers. It's on the other side of the snowball earth barrier. Mm -hmm. And it's way back in a time in earth's history when oxygen levels were much, much lower. And so Uh the kinds of rocks that she found these fossils in are what are called stromatolites. Stromatolites are fossils of compressed cyanobacteria. So this would have been a time when the coastal regions of the earth, they wouldn't have had coral reefs or anything like that. What they would have had were mats, filamentous cyanobacteria, just sitting there photosynthesizing, fixing carbon, releasing oxygen into the atmosphere. And then year after year after year, they would die. And then some would grow on top and they die and some more would grow on top. And so you get these really microscopically thin layers of compressed cyanobacteria that through hundreds to thousands of years build up on top of each other. And then that fossilizes into this characteristic fossil called a stromatolite. Hmm. These kinds of fossils stretch back well over a billion years. Embedded within these stromatolites, she found these little features, these little tunnels that something clearly was going on that it caused this fossilization pattern of this kind of like branching worm-shaped network embedded within this stromatolite. And when she initially found these fossils like a couple decades ago, it wasn't entirely clear what that might have been. But subsequently, from similar fossils in the Cambrian, fossils of stromatolites with those kinds of specific features were confirmed to be sponge fossils. And so what happens is you have this sponge growing in amongst the stromatolites. And then when the sponge dies, it's got some rigid molecules in there that decompose at a slower rate. And so then it's kind of like the impression sort of fossil I talked about earlier, where it leaves behind kind of a cast that then fills in and mineralizes a little bit differently. Okay. And so nobody had a problem accepting that, oh, this is clear evidence of a sponge fossil from rocks that were from the Cambrian. Sure. And what this researcher found is fossils that looked pretty much the same as that, just from rocks that were 890 million years old, Hmm. right? If these rocks had been from like Cambrian deposits, nobody would have batted an eye, they would have said, well, obviously those are sponge fossils because they look exactly like these other sponge fossils. But the fact that they are from rocks that are so much older is giving at least some people pause on accepting it as truly confirmatory of being sponges. Hmm. Earth's oxygen levels were way lower than they are currently. So globally, oxygen levels would have been really low. But what's neat to think about is that these little micro environments of growing right next to cyanobacteria, well, what are they kicking off? They're kicking off oxygen. Right. So they might have actually been these little tiny micro habitats of relatively higher oxygen concentration that would have allowed these sponges to eke out an existence with just enough oxygen available. Interesting. So anyway, that it's this additional line of evidence that some of the earliest branch points in the animal phylogeny are perhaps much older than we have been thinking. Yeah, it's great that they're coming at it using different techniques, different ways of thinking about it, Mm -hmm. and can ultimately come to a similar conclusion. Yeah. And I I think it also suggests that that boring billion might not have been so boring after all. There must have been some evolution going on in order for sponges to have been on the scene by 890 million years ago, because that would have to have meant that 
sponges diverged from fungi before that. So hmm. I think this is a situation where we're going to find out that the boring billion maybe wasn't so boring. It's just up until now, it's been difficult to find any direct evidence of what it might actually have been like. Mm. But that absence of evidence is not evidence of the absence of something interesting happening. Oh, well, so that was a complicated story, but it wrapped up nicely into a nice little package at the end. So we need to change the name then. We can't call it the Boring Billion anymore. <laughs> or maybe it's just an interesting iota of time within a Boring Billion. Yeah, right. Well, thank you, Chad. Yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for letting me hold forth. I've been wanting to talk about this paper of 890 million year old sponge fossils for a while now. Many people would be like, oh, sponges, old, yeah. okay. <laughs> But hopefully our, our listeners understand why the fact that they're from rocks that old is actually kind of an exciting finding. Well, that's what we try to specialize in, finding the interesting within the over-complicated. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> this episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodeo Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for a future episode, email us at crisscrossingsci at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.